Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We'll ride that donkey donkey down to the honky tonky. It's gonna get funky funky. What I want the Democrats to do is walk and chew gum at the same time. These are both key skills, and we need to do both. The Democrats' fundamental problem is that their leadership looks like a geriatric ward. If Democrats want to challenge Trump, they need a new strategy. So says a fine piece from the Harvard Business Review, written by that rare political scientist teaching at a business school. Alternate title, How to Get This Ass Out of a Ditch. Hee-haw. Stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Boston, Mass., mere steps from the mighty Charles River, is Gotham Makunda, professor of organizational behavior at Harvard Business School. He authored the book Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter. And this treatise in the Harvard Business Review, if Democrats want to challenge Trump, they need a new strategy. He's a Jeopardy champ, believe it or not, a political scientist by training. The good prof was also a place kicker in the defunct USFL. How are you? <laughs> Very well, but my kicking leg's not what it once was. Did I do your your elaborate bio any justice up there? <laughs> oh, well, more justice than it deserves, probably. I, I, I like to wander and do fun things. Let's put it that way. I should tell you, by way of full disclosure, that I am a, a graduate of the Harvard Business School class of 2003, so I am somewhat conflicted in booking guests there, but I'm not going to put on the kid gloves for this guy. He can handle it. Um, I, I was chiefly attracted by this this article that was getting heavy tweetage. I mean, a lot of reflection and navel-gazing now that Trump and the GOP control really all the levers in the executive branch and the legislative branch, and there's a lot of fear and loathing about the judicial branch. Let me take you back to November. What did you make of this victory? I mean, what was what was on your mind when you woke up the next morning? So I was in China when it happened. So for me, the election day, uh, sort of the polls closed at 8 a.m. And I was with a bunch of my students and sort of took them through that whole day for us as we tried to process what happened. And I was quite confident Trump was going to win the Republican nomination. I certainly didn't think he was going to win the election. And not only to see him win, but to see him win through this fluke of the Electoral College, where 80,000 votes in three states mean that someone who lost the popular vote by a pretty large margin suddenly ends up as the next president of the United States, was something to process. And then what we saw, both over the course of that election day and then over the months since then, is sadly exactly what I feared, that the person he ran as in the campaign is exactly who he was. 
There was no faking. There was no there was no sort of persona that he put on to get votes. This is who he is, and this is who, what we have to deal with for the next few years. Did anybody expect, I mean, for all the polling done for the Nate Silver stuff, the statistical significance of we know with certain certitude that, you know, Hillary Clinton has a four percentage point lead across a, a, a mean or median of several polls. Um, how did nobody foresee, I mean, when you look at the modeling and as a political scientist, how did nobody see that kind of back strategy in the Rust Belt? What happened in Pennsylvania? What happened in Michigan? What happened in Wisconsin? I mean, everybody was waiting with bated breath for Florida and Ohio and the usual suspects. And there was even speculation that morning that Hillary might win Utah. Yeah, it was, it was remarkable. The level of overconfidence in the Democratic Party and in the Clinton campaign was was just stunning. Uh, I think a few things happened that come on all at once. One is that the national polling was actually quite accurate. It was actually the national polling in terms of the polling to capture the popular national vote was better this year than it was, was better in this election than it was four years ago. Right. So that's the first thing we have to remember that when we say the polling failed as well. The Electoral College outcome was different, but the national polling did not fail. The second is that what we saw was the state polling failed in quite a few states catastrophically. Right. It, it, it was massively off. Um, but what happens there is essentially is polling like that is pro profoundly driven on turnout models, that we have some estimate of what the underlying population of the voting is going to look like. And when we do the sample, we try to get the final vote based on that estimate. And those estimates were off because it seemed, looks like two things happened. One is uh, sort of high school educated white vo voters turned out more than we anticipated that they would. And the second is that college-educated white voters turned out less than we anticipated they would. So what you saw, I thought, was a combination of sort of extraordinary enthusiasm for the Trump campaign amongst a certain base of the population and, frankly, a lack of enthusiasm for the Clinton campaign amongst a different set of the population. And so you see there was a poll that came out a couple of days ago. It just had this amazing statistic. I want to make sure I got the numbers right. So high school-educated white men think Trump have an approval rating for Trump of 64-28. And uh, the exact so flip of that with college, college, college blood educated white women, right? Exactly. Right. And it was <laughs> 2864 for them. And so what we're seeing in American college, it's to a remarkable extent, an educational divide. And I actually do think that a lot of the commentary on the election has underplayed the extent to which, yes, class divides mattered. But if it was class divides, you don't vote for a guy who lives in a penthouse in New York with a who literally has a gilded elevator, right? That's not a class divide thing. It looks like it's more like educational divide that was the primary driver here. It was one of the marketing coups, I think the great marketing coups, if, assuming that he wasn't as blindsided as everyone else on the night that he won, that he could recast himself. I mean, to me, Donald Trump was always a, you know, he talked the GOP talk, but he was a decidedly apolitical, self-preservationist, Upper East Side. I know, you know, Lincoln Center person, New York City uh, property billionaire who liked to hobnob with the likes of Warren Beatty and everyone else. Liked to be seen. Never, never kind of met a PR opportunity he didn't adore. Uh, and and then to to really perfectly recast himself as a as a populist champion or somebody who flicks his middle finger at Washington D.C. was. I think from a marketing perspective, still pretty breathtaking. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, it's hard to deny that he has extraordinary gifts as a marketer, right? I mean, that's his whole thing. He's not a very good real estate developer. That's not what he does. Most of his money nowadays come, come well, before he became president, who knows where Li Licensing, now. licensing. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, licensing, right? And licensing is all marketing, marketing the Trump name, people who associate 
the Trump name with luxury goods and really it was sort of entry level luxury goods. Right. I mean, Trump ties are not really, really great ties, but they're marketed as really great ties. So there was that sort of that sort of distinction as well. But so I, I'll just note that I think and I, I talked about this a little bit in the article. But what we really saw was the fact that the Republican elites, the sort of re- Republican elected office holders, were espousing a set of policies fundamentally resol- revolving around sort of cutting taxes, particularly on the wealthy, and cutting social spending to everybody, but of course, particularly on the poor, that were extremely popular with the Republican donor base but had very, very little support amongst the actual people who vote in Republican primaries. Mm. So you had a profound disjunction between what the party's office holders were saying and voting on and what the people who were voting for them actually said they wanted when you polled them. Which I did a double take when I read that in the piece, which we're going to delve into and kind of tease apart. But that is a contrarian bet, to say the least, that you can... You could kind of work that divide. You could play that arbitrage and emerge victorious from the primaries and then coagulate the support of the establishment and the GOP. I had to read that passage several times and say, wow, was there a winning national election campaign strategy in that? So I'm not sure that there was because you always want you want to be careful reading too much from one data point, right? If not for any number of other things, Trump doesn't win the election. He, I think he wins the general, the, the primary under most circumstances because he genuinely was a more accurate representation of Republican prim- Party primary voters than the people he was running against. Mm. He was a much closer match to their preferences than, say, Ted Cruz or John Kasich was. But the general election, you know— a uh, piece I wrote for, I wrote about, I guess, eight or nine months ago now, going when it looked, when I was sure Trump was going to win the nomination, but long before it became official, was I said Democrats who are saying, oh, gee, this is perfect, there's no way we can lose against Donald Trump, should be a lot less confident. Uh, elections are weird. Strange things happen, right? We have had elections disrupted by the entry of a third-party candidate, by an assassination attempt on a candidate, by the death of a family member of a candidate, right? So elections are weird and strange things happen and you cannot predict what's going to happen with total certainty going into them. And this one, yeah, did Donald Trump look like an awful candidate? Yeah, he did, but it turns out that partisanship in this country is so strong that roughly 90% of Republicans will vote for anyone as long as they have the Republican after their name. And equally probably true for Democrats, right? I suspect most Democrats would vote for anyone as long as they're a Democrat. And then that by in and of itself makes it close enough that pretty random events ranging from, you know, investigations over email servers to Russian hacking to the FBI making a statement to any, you know, pick your thing that disrupted the election in a weird and unpredictable way to can swing it one way or the other. Well, these were two decidedly unpopular nominees. We kept hearing that throughout 2016, that never have you seen them poll so low nationally. I mean, even within Democrats, clearly the Bernie camp was holding its nose to try to figure out how to love this guy. You had no love loss from the Bushies, from Ted Cruz, from John Kasich, McCain. I mean, people in his own state wouldn't even show up at his nominating convention. What amazes me, uh, especially when I see Obama leaving office after the interregnum, is how 
popular he leaves office. And and for the first time in, in recent history, with a president being that popular, you didn't have his incumbent candidate, i.e. his vice president, parlay that popularity into um, his own election. So you mean the Joe Biden or Joe you mean Biden? Howard? I wonder how much do you do you play that in your head? Like how this all would have played out had Joe Biden been the nominee or even with Bernie Sanders? I can't I can't help but 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 kind of try to to to, to you know, run run that in my head to see if if that would have made a difference in the Midwest. I'm sure this is happening with the Democratic Party right now, because before you want to engage in this period of introspection and self reinvention, you're wondering if it was just a function purely of running the wrong candidate. Hillary Clinton had many virtues at, at, in her terms of her preparation and things like that, but it's clear that at a fairly basic level, popular appeal for her, that you can say it was because of her, you can say it was because of conservative attacks on her, you can come up with the reason you want. But I think it is an objective fact that that a very large fraction of the American public reacted incredibly negatively to her mm. and which made them willing to tolerate sort of even someone like Donald Trump as their nominee. Uh, to go to the the two sort of alternative candidates that you were talking about, to start with Bernie, um, I don't think Bernie would have had any chance at all. Uh, I think it was Kurt Eichenwald who ran an article about the opposition research file the Republicans had prepared for Bernie just in case he was the nominee. Mm. And you know the line was, he said, it is multiple feet thick when you write it in paper, right? So the idea that the people who made Hillary Clinton into this hate figure would somehow end up voting for a self-described socialist, oh, I don't buy it. Joe Biden, on the other hand, every time I watched that campaign, I kept thinking, Joe Biden would pants Donald Trump. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, wow. during a debate, he might literally have pants Donald Trump. So, um, <laughs> so um, you know, so it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard to believe that, you know, Joe Biden, who sort of did, I agree with you, hit this sort of, you know, ability to speak to the white working class that who gives a, you know, gives a heck of a speech, right, who just has that note of being able to go and would not have dealt with the gender, you know, the gender issues, which clearly hurt Hillary during the campaign. It's hard for me to imagine that Joe Biden would not have won uh, the the general election, but I don't didn't see any scenario where he was ever going to win the primary. So then the, piv he... then the pivot into your recommendations, which we're, we're going to delve into right now. Uh, is this just a fluke? Is this just something where the stars uh, aligned? You have to wonder institutionally because we just come across the Democratic Party having elected its own standard bearer, having mm -hmm. a, a moment. Well, we decide between Keith Ellison and others who who represent the establishment more. Do we take a flyer on this? This uh, this this mayor from Indiana, but by and large, the establishment with an asterisk did prevail in the end. There's a lot in the party. There are many who are saying we don't have to reinvent ourselves. We don't have to genuflect before the white working class, non-college educated person. We just have to find where we left off with Obama. So I, I, I would answer both. It was a fluke. That does not mean that the Democratic Party does not have profound problems. Right. Both of those can be true. So I think the Democratic Party has profound problems. I think it took a combination of those profound problems and a series of fluke circumstances to elect Donald Trump. Right. The argument that you see people make, well, look, Hillary won the popular vote by a pretty hefty margin. Therefore, she does have, you know, fairly large appeal. I'm like, well, OK, but if you beat a guy who is on who is on tape boasting about committing serial sexual assaults by only two to three percent, your strategy probably isn't working that well, right? That, that is indicative of, of a profound problem. So if, just to break that down a little bit, the 
fact that the party is having a huge problem does not, again, mean necessarily that the solution to that is genuflecting to the white working class, right? There could be lots of other solutions to the problem beyond that. What I would say is that there are a series of things that the party can and should do that would both appeal to the white working class and appeal to the to the modern base of the Democratic Party, which is sort of minority voters and highly educated white voters, that those are not, in fact, trade-offs. You can, you can, to some extent, not a perfect extent, there are always some trade-offs, but there are things the party could do that would appeal to both. Now, the focus of my article was not on policy because it was originally written as a memo for someone I knew in Congress basically laying out a strategy. This is that those are two different things. Presidential campaign, so our nominee in three, the Democratic nominee in three years, needs to be someone who has a profound, positive, and powerful message that speaks to both the base of the Democratic Party and to what what I call in the what I call in the article marginal voters, people who both people who could go either way, but people also who just might not vote. But that is different from the way congressional Democrats should act in such a way as to minimize the damage that Trump has the ability to do and maximize their odds of not just a victory, but a dramatic victory in in four years. Well, surely you've seen this stat and kind of the the, the subsurface, the bedrock of the Democratic Party. When things looked great uh, during the Obama years uh, with its standard bearer, Barack Obama, uh, winning the White House handily twice, right, against McCain, against Mitt Romney. And yet uh, in in the period of introspection after that bombshell loss that Hillary had in November, you realize that the Democrats actually lost more than a thousand seats across legislatures, governor's mansions and Congress during the Obama eight years. And that actually, when you when you step back and look at, you know, 900 to a thousand seats, building that foundation from scratch in a period where you're looking at gosh, what can they do uh, in the immediate near future with 2018 is hugely daunting. The erosion of the foundations of the Democratic Party is profound and extraordinary in the last eight years. Um, You know, in historical terms, the Democratic Party is the dominant party in American politics. The Republican Party over most of its history has been the sort of second, the number two party in the country. And that's just not true at any level of the American government now. Just to point out how just how far this goes. 33 of the 50 states have united Republican control of the of the state legislatures. At 34 states, the Republican Party, if it were unified enough to act in this way, would have the ability to rewrite the United States Constitution as it wished. That's how that is how dominant the Republican Party is right now. No one really saw this going back to October. I mean, people talked about an October surprise, a November surprise. They thought at at minimum, really, they said even if there was an upset and Trump somehow eked it out, Democrats, you would not have a a triple play, a kind of running the table on – both houses of Congress and the White House. And and before we finally delve into the specifics, I kind of want to get into how in the world institutionally, I mean, these people have pollsters, they have statisticians, they have attorneys, they have people in the trenches, community activists. How in the world did the party whiff on this? Did nobody even romance this doomsday scenario? So I think there are two parts of that. One is that because partisanship in the United States is so heightened, you don't have to be off by very much to be off on the outcome by an enormous amount. Does that make sense? Say it if again. everything Say if it every if if partisanship in the United States is so strong that basically, you know, outside of gerrymandered districts, but overall, the swing elections, marginal elections are going to be 52-48, 51-49 
pretty consistently, unless you have, you know, George W. Bush in 2008, where so many things have gone wrong that just no, basically no one except, uh, you know, the bedrock is going to vote in their favor. Right. So elections can be very, very close across the country. And so if you're off by 2 percent in a 51-49 election, 2 percent is pretty good, hmm. but you're still you're still wrong. Right. And so what we're seeing also, second, is the nationalization of elections. Remember Tip O'Neill, that sort of Massachusetts Democratic Speaker of the House? He used to say all politics is local. That used to be true. It is now completely untrue. One of my friends is a he's a member of the Tennessee state legislature. And he said to me the biggest thing he had learned in the last few years. And he said this before 2016. He said this in 2015 to me. He said the biggest thing he had learned in his local political career is that all politics is now national. So people are not voting based on local issues. They are voting based on their sense of identity with the national party and with the national culture of conservatism or liberalism or what or what have you. And what that means, right? So this 2016 was the first election, I believe, in which every single senatorial election went the same way as the presidential election at that state. Mm. So if a state voted for Donald Trump, it elected Republican senators. And if a state voted for Hillary Clinton, it elected Democratic senators. And it was the first time in American history that that was true for every single state. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are joined by Harvard Business School professor Gotham Mikunda. He was trained as a political scientist. He is at HBS right now where his article this week in the Harvard Business Review, you can check it out online. If Democrats want to challenge Trump, they need a new strategy. Good prof, delve into that for me. Uh, Tom Perez, he just won this, I guess, modestly embattled position to be DNC chair. If he has to do one thing after he's done rolling up his sleeves and, and accepting congratulations, what is it? So I, I, I'm an author. I have to, I of course, have to answer he needs to read my article. But more broadly, I would say, let me, in a less humorous note, is he needs to understand that the Democratic Party, one, does not have a coherent message for what it stands for and has not adopted a coherent approach for what it stands against. And both of those things are really, really important. My article was mainly on the second, so why don't we start off with that, and we can Please talk do. about yeah, four go ahead. later. When you look at the, at the presidential election, and we try to understand, okay, how did what drove support for Donald Trump? What 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 drove the base? So what I said is I identified essentially four basic drivers for support. One of them, and it's important not to understate the importance of this. One of them is hostility towards women, towards minorities, and towards women. So especially in the primary, when we did polling on what drove support in the Republican primary for Donald Trump. Statistically, there was enormous evidence that the sort of the more hostile you felt towards minorities, the more likely you were to vote for Donald Trump. And that did not that that feeling did not correlate with support for any other candidate in the Republican primary. Right? So that is a base of support for him and we need to be we need to understand that and acknowledge it. But what I say is, look, yeah, but he won 13 million votes in the primary. He won roughly 63 million votes in the general. So there are 50 million other voters out there who voted for him for other reasons. And we need to understand what those are, too. Right. So the one of the things. So let's just bring out the other reasons. One is, again, to bring back something you talked about earlier, partisanship. Right. A lot of people just vote for the party now. Mm -hmm. That wasn't true in American history, but it is true now. But there are two other things that sort of draws. One was this idea that there was just an enormous level of hostility to Hillary Clinton, and so they voted for anyone who opposed her. And the fourth one was this idea that Donald Trump was a non-traditional Republican, right? That he was someone who 
actually vo- said the things that the Republican Party base, the voters, actually believed in, not the sort of obsession with only cutting taxes for the rich that the Republican Party elected officials in the Washington were about. And he was a, a, a businessman who could get things done. That was the image he had created over the course of a generation. And therefore, there was this belief that he was this business person who could go to Washington and make it work in a way that normal politicians could not. Now, you and I can argue as to whether that image is true, right, whether he deserves to have that image as a successful businessman, but whether or not he does, that image exists, and it was core to his support. So given that, my argument is, if we understand that these are his bases of support, congressional Democrats who have to, who have to by virtue of being in the minority, be largely reactive and defensive, need to understand that this and go after those bases of support. We can't do anything about the partisanship. We shouldn't do anything about the racial. Right? I, I don't want the Democrats to appeal to people on grounds of racial hostility. So I don't. So let's. So don't touch on. Don't touch that. In terms of of, of hostility to Hillary Clinton, we can solve that problem by not running Hillary Clinton in 2020. I think we got that one taken care of. And so the fourth one, the set of ideas that he is a non-traditional Republican and that he can get things done. That's what we attack. And to attack that, you need to understand first that most Americans do not pay attention to politics, right? The, the most Americans do not spend a lot of time thinking about politics. For a pretty large chunk of Americans, the only elected official they can actually name is the president of the United States. Hmm. I think something like 40% of Americans cannot tell you which party is in control of Congress at any one time. So, and it's, and right, you know, I just want to sort of note there, this actually makes sense most of the time. Your ability, if you are the average American voter, your ability to influence the outcome of politics is pretty tiny, right? So do I follow politics because it's my civic duty? Or do I follow politics the same way I follow the Red Sox? Because it's really, really fun. You know, I can tell you that it's my civic duty, but a pretty large component of that is because it's fun. It's like baseball. It's like football. It's interesting to me. It's my hobby as much as it is anything else. And so, right, so when I say, okay, most people don't pay attention to politics, well, they choose not to, and I don't, have, I don't actually have a problem with that most of the time. Most of the time, the system works in the United States, and there are no negative consequences for that. Every once in a while, it means you get Donald Trump, and we have to deal with that. But it is still true that if most people don't pay attention to politics— And most people basically can only, when they think about politics, they think about politics as revolving around the president. That that means is that they are going to sort of attribute any outcome to the president. So this this was the, the insight that Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, had eight years ago under Obama. And it is, I think, what makes him the finest senatorial tactician since Henry Clay all the way back in the 1850s, is that Mitch McConnell realized that there were no brownie points. You didn't get any ex, any bonuses from the from the American public for being bipartisan and working with the president. You could think of the American public as split into three groups: Republicans, Democrats, and what I and you know we often say independents, but it would be more accurate to say marginal voters because most independents are just formally independents. They actually always vote with one party or the other. Sure. Okay. So all Republicans. Are Why don't we just call them swingers and make it fun? <laughs> So swingers is not—so the funny thing is I'm not sure there are that many swing voters, 
but there are a few, and of course they're important because they're the persuadable chunk. They're, the reason I use the phrase marginal voters is because some of these are people who just, you know, it's not that what they're What if they are marginalized they... voters, sir? See, there's so many plays <laughs> on words that we can have here. Oh, there are lots of them. And they and, and of course, right, what was the driver here? It was people who felt marginalized, who were sort of really, really the angry. Marginalized, the marginalized marginal... I love how you can kind of slice and dice these Venn diagrams. You can almost make head cheese out of them. Like, right, if we just take the Midwest, there's the uneducated Midwest, there's the uneducated white Midwest. There's the uneducated white Midwest that voted for Obama two times but did not vote for Hillary and did not vote for Trump and just sat it out. And then there are those that voted. You know, I, it, it just almost gives me an aneurysm, sir. I mean, I love this piece. It's why I called you and, and booked you on. But how did you, how did you slice and dice it to this extent? It kind of blows my mind. So I wanted to slice and dice it in the simplest possible way, right? What I wanted to say is, okay, what do we know about American voters? And what we know is that, here's the thing, the less partisan you are, the less you pay attention to politics. That's the key thing that I think most people don't understand. The most, the really partisan voters are also the ones who are really knowledgeable about, about American politics. The people who are marginal voters who are like, well, I don't really care about either party and I don't really get, like, they don't really know, they don't really follow politics. What about that playbook, though, after the mid-90s contract with America that Clinton realized, and I don't know if you buy the triangulation mm -hmm. thing, that he could turn around and make make the Republicans under Newt Gingrich who were looked at as obstructionists suffer a consequence, both in the midterms and the national election for uh, not agreeing to play ball, that that's when the electorate gets ticked off, when they see that one party is just the party of no. And at the same time, you're telling me that Mitch McConnell had very deftly played the party of no. Yeah, so I think two things happened there. One was the 1990s are very different, right? It's a much less partisan era. Even though it felt partisan at the time, it was much less partisan than it is now. The second is that Clinton was dealing with opponents who overplayed their hands so catastrophically that even people who aren't don't pay attention to politics pay attention when you vote to impeach the president. Hmm. And when the economy is going really well, they say, wait a second, you know, I, I remember, I attribute all outcomes to the president because he's the only elected official I know. The economy is booming. I have a job. My income is going up. And you're trying to get rid of this guy? That is an unbelievable, you know, that's where Newt, that's where Newt Gingrich was an awful tactician and Mitch McConnell was a brilliant one, is that Newt Gingrich wanted to get rid of Clinton Mitch McConnell said, no, what I'm going to do is cripple Obama and win the next election. I see. Very different approach. So they, I mean, were you almost wondering if they were willing to cede on Romney? Did they kind of see that that, it, it certainly felt like he had more of a chance the night before of winning that election than Trump did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the Romney people thought they were going to win it, certainly. Uh, I, I can't estimate, but I mean, remember, McConnell's original strategy said was, I want to make Obama a one-term president. And it's kind of striking when you think about the level of ruthlessness that that implies, right? He said that in the middle of the great, one of the greatest national emergencies in American history, the American economy is in free fall. This financial system is collapsing. The world is in, on the edge of the second great there are, depression. There are many, as you know, this prof who just say that the Republican leadership is just better at knife fighting. It's better at being Machiavellian than the Democratic leadership. <laughs> they coalesced. I mean, the party of hell no. Even after yeah. Obama won it in a time of emergency and you know, you don't waste a good emergency. That that honeymoon was very short-lived. 
You know, I, I'm always skeptical about this because Democrats love to tell the story that we're, you know, we're virtuous and nice and our opponents are evil. And I hear my, my Democratic friends tell the story all the time. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't think that's not the story they tell. So I'm a little skeptical. But I will give, you know, vicious or not, I'll give McConnell a lot of credit. I think he is better at this than anyone in American politics in the last one and a half centuries. That is incredible that that came out. I mean, you 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 look at the guy. I mean, a lot of people just say he's he he gives this poker look. He's very dispassionate. Um, maybe that's the answer in this gridlock period, realizing that there are only a handful of levers you can pull because the country is so helplessly uh, gridlocked in partisanship uh, that you just you just have to be very focused on a handful of people. So it could be. So, but remember, you can get stuff done if you win control of the federal government. In the first two years of the Obama administration, when he won in a landslide and had control of the Congress and the White House, I mean, we forget just how incredibly productive those two years were in terms of past legislation. And nobody Whether, forgets how incredibly destructive the midterm election of 2012 yeah. was, though. And this yeah. is where this is where spinning it ahead. Is there going to be anything approximating that kind of backlash in 2018? I mean, certainly you're seeing that structurally it's, it's a much taller kind of wall for the Dems to have to climb than the Republicans. I cannot imagine a scenario where the Rep Democrats take the Senate. That's, uh, you know, absent, I don't know, the, the, a level of chaos that we can and, and collapse that we even now we can barely process. Uh, you know, Trump swears allegiance to Putin during the State of the Union or something like that. Um, you know, absent something quite that farcical, I'm certain that the Democrats, the Republicans hold the Senate. But the House is much more in question. The, the, the Republican margin in the House is small enough and there are enough Republicans who are who seated in congressional districts that Hillary Clinton won, that the Republican majority in the House is, I think, a lot more imperiled than people think it is. Are those districts not up for any more gerrymandering? So you can't you gerrymander every ten years. So the, the next census, round is right. That's right. <laughs> uh, I do see in the upshot you said that when you when you do isolate those the voters that can move potentially theoretically. Quote, this creates an enormous opportunity for those opposed to Trump. Every time he proposes a conventional Republican policy, win or lose, Trump will be pushing ideas that his supporters mostly oppose and that seem like exactly the sort of generic Republican they rejected by electing him. Whatever type of policy he pushes, if he is seen to fail, the opposition will get a double triumph on the issue and by showing that his aura of competence is a false one. The less Trump seems to be someone who can get things done, the less his marginal voters will believe in him. That's exactly right. To me, that this is this is the cycle that eventually left George Bush an almost, you know, an almost a non-entity by the time he left office in 2008, right? He was so low in the polls that other Republicans ran away from him. So Trump is already starting at the lowest point of any newly elected president in the history of modern polling. And what I'm saying is, look, this guy is demonstrating on a daily basis that his government is not competent, right? We can see this, that their inability to execute even the basic blocking and tackling a government is astonishing. And so right now, that message may or may not be percolating out to the to these sort of marginal voters who are the people who will decide the election. But if you hammer, if you spend enough time on it, if you emphasize it over and over, if you get it to demonstrate it over and over and over again, and the Trump people will give you no lack of opportunities to demonstrate that, it will get through. So let's go back to Tom Perez. Okay. He calls you. 
after he hears this and he's like, okay, first things first, what do I do first? Mm -hmm. Who do I call? What do I assemble? Don't give me no blue ribbon committee panel thing that, you know, will get results Mm -hmm. in in 12 months and there's plausible diffusion of responsibility. What do I do now? Get down to brass tacks. Yeah. So there are three things you have to do. One I covered in my article and two, which are just as important, but which I did not. One is you need a congressional strategy of how to block Trump. And that's what I outlined. And the congressional strategy is something along the lines of you figure out that when he does something that is sort of at least popular with his supporters, but Republicans who are elected in Congress, who are at least some of them, you know, conservatives in the old school sense, will not support is you start figuring out ways to peel off those Republicans. And there are certainly ways to do that because Trump himself, by running against the Republican Party establishment, lost the ability to claim party loyalty. Sure. Right. When the Republicans, when the Paul Ryan people start pushing on privatizing Medicare, you go to war on that, right? Because, you know, there is nothing in American politics as sacrosanct right. as Medicare, right? right. And so the, the fact that these guys, you know, they make Tom Price, HHS, Secretary of HHS, and they say, look, we're actually going to take a cut of Medicare. I mean, how, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi must be going home at night and being like, thank God we have opponents who would do something that self-destructive. So, you, you know, you fight him in Congress in that way by, render, by demonstrating over and over again with every, in every sort of strategy you can that what he is doing will fail and fails. And the one thing you don't do is what the, Congre- the re- Democrats were making noises about, which is, oh, well, we should cooperate with him on some things to get brownie points for bipartisanship. We should line up with him on an because that Because that doesn't win you anything. It doesn't win you anything. But from a self-preservation perspective, if you are, say, a median Democratic congressman somewhere in this infrastructure bill, this is a huge, 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 massive barrel of pork product coming through. And that Mm -hmm. helps people. That helps on a kind of constituent basis. Like, look, we are going to be along that high-speed corridor. We are going to get highway funds. It makes sense for us to kind of hang low and just take the money right now and Mm -hmm. wait for somebody else to go out and, and, and execute that president politically. So there are two things I'd say to that. One is the way that the Trump people are talking about structuring the infrastructure bill, that's not actually going to happen, right? They are talking about structuring it with a series of tax giveaways that are basically just subsidies for projects that will happen anyways. And essentially, it's a huge giveaway to people who would build the infrastructure. It's not actually going to produce new infrastructure. So you're, you're being offered a false hope here. The second thing to remember is they're not going to give you credit for it. They're going to give the president credit for it. And they will vote for the person the president wants them to, Republican or right. Or if they don't like the president, they'll vote against the person the president. Mm-hmm. So the, your election is not about your constituent service anymore. It's about the status of the party. So that's a big distinction. They really don't have any firewall right now. They don't have the if they if they threaten to use the filibuster right on the road thing mm-hmm. that can be changed. And that was that was that was planted by the Democrats themselves when they were in charge. So. What what can you do? I mean, you know, focus focus what you just said to me and say, so what do you do? Then lean on potential borderline, you know, old school Republican congressmen when something like a big pork barrel project or entitlement cuts comes up. I mean, how do you how do you kind of get in and, and, and drive a wedge within the Republican Party, which which already you would see coming out of the bruising primary battle last year is a divided party. So congressman is really hard. Um, but the Senate is easier. You only need to flip three senators to block anything in the Senate. It's obvious that there are more than three senators who really, really don't like Donald Trump. 
There are more than three Republican senators, I mean, and there are more than three Republican senators who not are either not running for re-election for Professor, another Professor, you would have mm-hmm. thought it was the lowest hanging fruit in the world with Jeff Sessions and with with uh, you know Betsy DeVos. <laughs> you would have had a lot of cover going in there if you're a McCain or a Susan Collins or a Lindsey Graham, especially when he's being assailed by all these Russia allegations. But even them within the Republican Party, there's a fear that they're going to be you know, I, I, I wonder, let's just take McCain, mm-hmm. Senator McCain. What does he have to worry about? He's 80 years old. He's not up for election for another six years and he'll probably not going to run again. Right. He he got in. He has no allegiance to Donald Trump outside this party. He would like to see increased defense spending and a priority of intelligence and whatnot. But he doesn't trust this guy. They've 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 exchanged swear words and the like. So why why? On, like what I said, low-hanging fruit opposition stuff, did they vote in line with Trump? So party loyalty still means something to these guys. John McCain has been a Republican for his entire life. I will say I was disappointed in Senator McCain for not I, – I understand Betsy DeVos. Uh, whatever I thought of her, she's not that different from anyone a Republican president would have nominated. Uh, I was disappointed that he chose to vote for Jeff Sessions, but Jeff Sessions is a fellow senator, and the Senate is the world's most exclusive club, and senators always scratch other senators' back. True, but Chuck Schumer didn't scratch his back. Elizabeth Warren, I mean, that wasn't collegiality. She stood up there and invoked Coretta Scott King, after all. You would have thought that this would have given cover to, like, the last remaining four or five borderline Republicans, especially the ones who don't love this, this president. You would wish so, but as long as Donald Trump is polling at 80 plus percent among Republican voters, almost every Republican politician is going to line up behind him. Mm. So I'm, I'm right. The, the strategy I was saying, right, was one of the things I wanted to make very clear was I don't expect to win very many of these fights in Congress. Right. You, what you, the way you do this is you fight as hard as you can and you're seen to fight and you delay things and you slow things down and you hit implementation. You don't have to win. You have to fight. And the fighting will matter, one, because the fighting takes time and there's a very limited amount of time to get things done. For example, for Obama, the Obamacare repeal, it is vastly less likely that Obamacare will be repealed successfully by the Republicans than it was a month ago, simply because in the intervening month they have gotten nothing done and the window is starting to close on them. Right. So the delay tactics matter in the Senate, for example. One of the things that you can do is consistently and this means you have to keep someone in the Senate 24 hours a day, at least one person is consistently refuse to get to agree to unanimous consent for Senate procedures. Every time you do that, it delays things by 48 hours. I see. So, so this is are, really trench warfare in this. this I mean, is you're really just trying trench- to buy time and run out the clock into 2018. Yeah. This is exactly the opposite of the tactics I would advocate under any other president. I think one of the things, right, my normal approach to when I talk about politics is take half a loaf, take a quarter of a loaf, strike, loaf, strike every deal you can, get every little bit of progress because our job is to make life better for Americans. Our job is to get things done. And so that's what you do. But, but right, Albert Einstein, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting the outcome to change. Well, here what I'm saying is, look, the circumstances are different. Donald Trump is a unique threat to American institutions. There has never been a president like him before. Hopefully there never will be again. And you should not act as if Donald Trump is a normal Republican president because he is not. You use different tactics against him than you would against any other Republican. We're talking to Gotham Mikunda, that rare politics wonk on the HBS side of the Charles River. Sir, this is this is really surprising. I never had any prof like this on the other side. I mean, they're talking about organizational behavior and what was a what was the class we had? Biggie. 
Uh, Biggie, business, government, is, international business government, and international <laughs> economics. I mean, gosh, I wish I could have feasted on uh, this kind of wonkitude. They made us go across the river for stuff like this, uh, which was not appealing when it was snowing. But I would like you to get. I, I would like you to talk about uh, what this Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, represents, especially after the party, as led by Mitch McConnell last year, refused to consider. Uh, the Dems' own replacement for the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, I don't know if, if if that has precedent going back to the Bush uh, 41 White House. If, if somebody dies in the final year of someone's term in office, that as a courtesy, you wait till the election passes or they just make that up as they went along. But moreover, how you think the Dems should play this with last year in mind and uh, the tactics going into 2018? So – I would say there's no way we're going to win the Gorsuch fight. And the person Obama nominated, Merrick Garland, right? What Mitch McConnell proved was that actually throwing out all the old norms of how the U.S. government operates and and basically declaring that the president actually only has a seven-year term and the eighth year doesn't count would not cause him to pay any political costs at the ballot box because he did it and he didn't. So what we find – so when we say how are we going to play it with Gorsuch, well, we're going to lose – Right. We're, we're, the, 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 he is a traditional Republican conservative, uh, conservative Republican nominee. He's thoughtful. He is well qualified. He is well respected by, by, as far as I can tell, every person who's worked with him in the law. There, the grounds for opposing him are the, that this was essentially a stolen seat on the Supreme Court, Correct. stolen by Mitch McConnell's parliamentary maneuvering. And it turns out that, guess what? The American public, writ large, does not consider that enough of an issue to change their vote on. And the way we see that is the Republicans control the federal government. So then so, do the Dems save their powder for another appointment? I mean, yeah, for, for kind of, you yeah. know, the, the things that you wear, where you fall, I've mixed so many metaphors, Jesus. You yeah. fall on your sword for something like this and await something that's more partisan. I mean, after all, Bush nominated uh, the current um, chief justice, who was thought of as a kind of a gift to the Democratic Party, that he wasn't such a horrific ideologue in that sense that a lot of people thought, wow, he's the kind of guy we could do business with. Maybe not like a Stephen Breyer, but, you know. Um, yeah. And, um, and you know, the current chief justice, the, the big issue with him is, is that his position on voting rights, which he's been sort of pretty much an, uh, an opponent of for his entire career. Hmm. But, um, but when you say this, is, I don't think the Democrats have a lot of powder, right? You have powder when you have something that you can do that will get you political traction. People care about health care. What it looks to me is like they don't vote on Supreme Court issues unless, right, the people who vote based on the Supreme Court are going to vote that way anyways. If you are a pro-life activist, you can say, well, I vote because of the Supreme Court, but you're going to vote Republican. And, you know, same thing for pro-choice activists. So who will vote Democrat. So the question of what should we do about Gorsuch consumes a lot of airtime in Mm. Washington. It just doesn't interest me that much because I don't think it's going to have any, the outcome is going to be the same. He's going to get confirmed unless something crazy happens. And the intervening fight over how it's handled, I don't think it's going to sway at, you know enough votes to make a difference in 2018. And that's what we should be focused on. So you pull your knives for what? For what occasion? When do you say hell no? I mean, the closest thing to it mm-hmm. was what Elizabeth Warren did. And that was an impassioned appeal when she was shut up on the floor of the Senate to take it to social media, to take it outside the steps. But in the end, that didn't get them anything. Yeah. Voting rights is the the single biggest thing is threats to institutional democracy, and that means voting rights. On Jeff Sessions, I completely agreed. So that any any Democrat who voted for Jeff Sessions, I said I would fly to their home state and campaign against him or her in the election because that was the bridge too far. 
right? That was the one where she's like, yeah, we weren't going to win that fight either, and we didn't. But you simply could not allow someone whose entire career was marked by doing everything he possibly could to suppress voting by minorities to be into the become the attorney general of the United States without the Democratic Party lining up in absolute opposition and say, we will fight you on this until the until the you know the end until the end. There could is they no could wait to walk me back on this? Could they have done anything mm -hmm. on top what they did? I mean, it's interesting to me that. The DeVos thing was more controversial. I think a senator from Alaska, a Republican senator from Alaska, yeah. seceded from that, but not on the Jeff Sessions vote. Yeah, that was surprising. It genuinely was a little surprising to me that DeVos got as so much more of a furor than Sessions did. And I think it was partly that everybody— I mean, DeVos, DeVos needed the tie-breaking vote from Mike Pence to, to yeah. get approved. And that was the first time in, in a long time that an otherwise mundane cabinet appointment needed that kind of 11th-hour intervention. I think it was the first time ever. I, I can't remember the last time, certainly. Uh, it was like something from, you know, that old movie from the 1950s, Advise and Consent. Mm -hmm. that, that's, the, that's the plot point when the vice president votes that way. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think partly it was that DeVos's con confirmation hearings were so farcically incompetent that it just became, even for Republicans, to be like, you know, how do I vote for this person who doesn't seem to have any knowledge of what it takes to be Secretary of, Energy, Secretary of Education? It was just sort of astonishing. The, the, the basic ignorance about the functions of the job that she revealed during the confirmation hearing, I think it genuinely hurt her in a way that we did not anticipate. Whereas, you know, I don't like what Jeff Sessions is going to do as Attorney General, hmm. but I don't doubt that he knows what the Attorney General's job is to make that distinction. Um, and the second is, I think, is the everybody interacts with the public schools. Even if you don't, even if you don't have kids, your public school is still one of the centers of your community. And the idea of the way Betsy DeVos did this, it sort of spoke to people that this is someone who just evinced a level of hostility to uh, seemingly the public school system in a way that really spoke to the Democratic Party base. Combine that, it's worth saying, with the power of the teachers' unions, which are probably the most powerful remaining unions uh -huh. in the United States. That institutionally, that caused a huge bit of a stir. But that being said, we didn't, you know, even with DeVos, who did everything she possibly could to sabotage her own nomination, we still didn't win, right? She still got it. And again, even if we had won, she would just have been replaced by someone with the exact same views. I found this passage interesting. Quote, we can think of the Trump administration as roughly divided between a traditional Republican faction led by Mike Pence and Reince Priebus and supported by Ryan and McConnell in the Senate and the House and an insurgent faction led by Bannon and Jeff Sessions. Given the unpopularity of the policies advocated by the Pence-Priebus faction, the more that control over policy shifts into the hands of the Republican faction, the better chance Democrats will have in trapping Trump in a vicious cycle. If the Bannon-Sessions faction faces early policy defeats, the balance of power is more likely to move to the Pence-Priebus faction, traditional Republicans in Congress, and Trump's cabinet, which will pursue policies that probably will result in further blows to Trump's popularity, making him even more likely to to face further defeats. Whoa, that's like some Rube Goldberg contraption, my man. Like 50,000 <laughs> if-then scenarios. <laughs> the Democratic leadership right now is facing a, a mutiny in its own ranks, right? They they need to worry immediately about, about doing something that uh, appeals to kind of the man-on-the-street indignation and the mass unpopularity that this president has, and, and more urgently, 2018. And you're talking about all these kind of conditional probabilities and, and if then again, that doesn't seem like there's something immediately actionable. So I think there is, but what I want the Democrats to do is walk and chew gum at the same time. These are both key skills and we need to do both, 
right? So the Democrats' fundamental problem is that their leadership their leadership looks like a geriatric ward and that they have not figured out a way to speak to in a way that gets the enthusiasm of lots of voters in the United States outright in lots of different ways. So, yeah, this is a huge problem, right? The face of the Democratic Party is people who are in their 70s, who don't speak to millennials, who don't, right, who have not demonstrated an ability to put together Lots of issues that, you know, even after 2008, we how much of this could we lay at the feet of the 2008 financial crisis where, right, where Wall Street, the financial sector, sort of American elites, quintessentially elites, destroyed the world economy. And the way we punished for them that, for this was we gave them huge amounts of money, right? People are really, really angry about this, and they should be angry about this. They saw no punishment about it. And the Democratic Party has not figured out a way to speak to that. Now, Amazing, right? The the tragedy of the two party system is the Republican Party's response to this crisis is, oh well, we want to give Wall Street everything it wants. We want to give them huge tax cuts and total deregulation. And because people are frustrated over the fact that the Democratic Party did not punish these guys, they turn to the Republicans who want to re- actively reward these guys. So that's the tragedy of the two party system, and that's something that de- the Democrats need to fix and need to think about. But when you sort of back up, is what they need to do is walk and chew gum at the same time. They need to do candidate recruitment, right? They need to get out there and get people who speak powerfully. We see in Massachusetts, so, you know, Seth Moulton is a congressman from Salem who took out an incumbent in the primary in 2014 and then won re-election in 2016. And he did this against the opposition of the Democratic leadership, because even though he is a, right, a, a guy would do, a, a Marine officer who did four tours in Iraq and is like the face of the new Democratic Party, they couldn't see past the fact that he was challenging a corrupt incumbent. Right. So that so that so that sort of blind, rigid, tactical incompetence that has been the characteristic of the Democratic Party really for its entire for much of its history, but certainly in the last last few years, they need to fix that. Right. So there, there was a, there's a I can't remember the, the district. There's a congressional district in Texas that Hillary Clinton won that district. She won the vote in that district. And the Democratic Party did not even run a candidate in that district. Mm. That is unforgivable, right? That can never happen again. So at the same time that you build the institutional base of the party, at the same time you do that, you have to engage in these tactics at the national level, right? We need to both strengthen the Democratic Party and weaken Donald Trump. You can't do one or the other. You have to do them both at the same time. What about the siren call still of the Bernie Sanders campaign? I mean, he's the closest thing to a standard bearer of kind of indignation right now for the Democratic Party. Of course, there's Chuck Schumer, but he's never met a camera that he didn't love immediately. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, you know, old reliable over there out on the out on the West Coast. I mean, some of the new faces, that's what I'm really struck by. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, she's there as a kind of a a a a bulwark of kind of opposition and you're hearing about Cory Booker in New Jersey. What are, this, what are the new faces that are going to kind of come out of the bullpen and rise to the occasion when and if this White House stumbles? So uh, it's in the process of stumbling, and I think we're seeing them. So certainly Elizabeth Warren has taken a front. You know, in the House, Seth has done a, has done a wonderful job. And you see, but Kristen Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, I would expect that once Kamala Harris really gets her feet under her, that she will be a powerful voice Chris, of Kristen Gillibrand, this is what I don't get. She was, a, she was a corporate attorney for the tobacco industry. <laughs> I mean, and then Hillary Clinton <laughs> leaves her seat and anoints her to be her successor, and now they're looking at her as a, as a kind of the hope of the party? You know, people find their voice in all sorts of incredible and all sorts of surprising places. And in this moment, a moment I genuinely believe, and I think most Democrats believe, of national emergency, 
you we should not look askance at anyone who rises to the occasion. Are there any Southern Democrats that are going to step to the fold? I remember when Clinton, kind of the worm turned on Clinton after 92, there were many blue dog Democrats that very gleefully stepped away from him and joined the Republican insurgency. Yeah, there isn't much left of the Southern Democratic Party, which is a tragedy. Um, and I certainly hope that we can start to put together the pieces of tr- and try and figure out um, how to do this. Um, I think it's uh, Jason Kander in Missouri, right? Um, he almost won his uh, he almost won his Senate race, and apparently Obama picked him has sort of dubbed him one of the most talented politicians in America. He's now in charge of a voting rights group, so people like that will start to I think rise. And certainly, it would be great for the Democratic Party to figure out how to get back into the South. And I think there are ways to do that. You're starting to see Georgia is starting to come into play. Even Texas looks like it may be starting to come into play in the next time. Although I'm I'm more of a skeptic about Texas than most people, but even Texas is starting to become, to show the, the faintest hints of purple, as it were. So in the long run, it's clear. I think it is clear the Democratic Party has ways to make inroads in the South. It would not surprise me if we take Georgia in 2020. Right. It really wouldn't surprise me if, we, if the Democrats took Georgia in 2024. But until we can do that, we need to figure out ways to do lots of other things like being able to get you. Could, it's not necessarily it's no. Right. It's not necessarily the Midwest where the future of the Democratic Party lies. Another path to, mil, to, to victory is through the Southwest. You can imagine a Democrat who speaks powerfully there picking up those states and flipping them and getting the presidency back. That well, the way. Southwest, assuming, of course, and I, I don't want to say this in a controversial way, that enough um, uh, Spanish-speaking Americans are enfranchised or feel okay going yeah. to the process. And we know that that's the trench warfare right now is voter voter rights yeah. and who is who is kind of better at enfranchisement versus kind of the passive aggression of, of making it difficult for more likely Democrats to go to the polls, whether you're talking about ex-felons or, you know, ex-cons, yeah. uh, scaring people with tactics about immigrants, illegal or otherwise. Uh, I think it's interesting. And, to, and, you know, we did not discuss California hardly in that mm-hmm. – California, is that what the country is increasingly going to look like demographically across the board as you go into the Sun Belt? This, this, this state that's its own kind of international economy unto itself, um, are we going to see that as kind of auguring what the demographic realities are for places like Georgia? I mean, certainly here in Virginia, we feel that northern Virginia is very different from the rest of Virginia. Oh, yeah. So I grew up in Maryland. So, yeah, northern Virginia and southern and the rest of Virginia are completely different. And in fact, as in Maryland, the D.C. suburbs are completely different from the eastern shore. Um, So California is always the future, right? We always say that California is the future of the of the United States. The, The thing I would note about California, just worth thinking about, right, is the question of the demographics, the question of was the Republican Party sort of doomed in the long term because of the increasing fraction of minorities in the United States, that question centrally revolved around whether minority populations would continue to vote entirely Democratic or would they sort of split out as they become sort of honorary white people, right? Would sort of would Hispanics go from being 70-30 Democratic to 60-40 to 50-50? You could imagine that scenario happening. Uh, what we have seen the the because of the choices the Republican Party may, has made in the last few years, ra- rather the opposite occurring, that instead of the appeal to minorities going, minorities moving more and more towards Republicans as they blend into the, uh, sort of assimilate, instead you see that sense of identity being reinforced. The way I think about this, so, you know, my family's from India, so I was born in the United States, but I'm an Indian American. When I was a kid growing up, the Indian American community was like 50-50 Republican Democratic. So yeah, about, you know, Indians are quite very well educated. They're in general in the United States quite wealthy. And about half of them would vote for Republicans. 
Now I can count the Indians I know who vote for Republicans on the fingers of one hand. Right. And, you know, even ones who had never voted for anyone. But <laughs> Trump a, for, neutralized yeah. Nikki Haley, by the way, by sending her <laughs> yeah. to the U.N. <laughs> UN I love yeah. how nobody's talking about that, a body which he has no respect for. But <laughs> she couldn't turn it down, of course. I mean, Nikki Haley, if I remember correctly, is Indian American. Yes, she is. Yes. The yes, governor of South is. Carolina who did not support Trump. And then yeah. <laughs> she got this great gig regardless. And that's a voice of opposition that's been neutralized. So, so what I've been told is that Trump gave her the ambassadorship because it made it promoted the lieutenant governor of South Carolina to full <laughs> Oh, and and he was one of the first people to endorse Trump, oh, one of the first Republican officeholders to endorse Trump. I, did I read correctly that Jeff Sessions was the only senator to endorse Donald Trump? Uh, I believe that is right. He was certainly the first senator to endorse Trump, Donald Trump. And Stephen Miller, his you know in, the incredibly incredibly sinister sort of senior policy advisor to Donald Trump, was Jeff Sessions's chief speechwriter before he became that. <laughs> Close us out, good prof. Um, what are your predictions? When and if are you going to see this White House truly trip up in terms of losing the establishment when a Paul Ryan finally says, I can't do business with this guy, when a John McCain or whoever it is in charge of the various um, super committees, they drive over to the West Wing, tell the chief of staff, hey, this ain't working out. I got to look out for my own bacon. I fear that we're pretty far away from that. My guess is that won't happen until until and if they face decisive defeats in the 2018 elections. As long as Donald Trump is polling at 80% among Republicans, which is roughly where he is right now, the establishment is going to hold because they are far more worried about losing in the primary than they are about losing in their gerrymandered districts. That being said, the thing about gerrymandering is there are two ways to do it. You can gerrymander in such a way that you make your own seats completely safe, but if you do that, then you put a ceiling on the number of seats you can hold. Or you can gerrymander in such a way as to maximize your chance of getting a very large majority in a legislature. The Republicans on the whole have chosen the second strategy. What that means is that most of the time you will control the legislature, but in the face of a wave election, you set yourself up to be absolutely devastated. And so the, Republican, the, the Republicans have created this opportunity for Democrats. It is up to Democrats to seize it. And it is astonishing to me, why does the Democratic Party not have a coherent strategy for how to handle redistricting yet, right? Why, it desperately needs that. Why does it not have a, re a recruitment strategy that works a lot better than the, one we've, than the one we've had so far? Why is that so generally outsourced to, you know, vote vets and run for America and all these great organizations which do wonderful work? But, you know, it's the Democratic Party's job to find its candidates. Why isn't it doing it? So if it can fix those things, and, you know, we have to ask that question. Will Rogers said this 100 years ago, right? He said, I I'm a member of no organized party. I'm a Democrat. Well, it seems to still be true. If the Democratic Party can fix that, then my prediction for Trump is that what we will see is that his erosion of his support will be very, very slow until it becomes very, very fast. That it will be a gradual process where he's going to hold at 80, he's going to hold at 80, he's going to hold at 79, he's going to hold at 78 for months, maybe even a couple of years, and then something will break as the accumulated backlog of all of the various sort of disasters or barely averted disasters or just you know, things that look bad will all hit him at once. And you'll see his numbers drop to the floor. Perhaps a superstorm in the Gulf of Mexico. Perhaps another financial crisis. Oh, gosh. Yeah, let's just hope it's nothing that bad. Look into your crystal ball. I close with uh, your closing for this excellent essay in the Harvard Business Review on what the Dems can do uh, to wrest back power. The opposition is in a race against the clock, and no one knows how much time is left on it. 
what is clear is this. If Democrats want to challenge Trump effectively, then every day they spend using the failed tactics of 2016 is a day wasted. Professor Gotham Mikunda, I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to the Harvard Business School, Jim Eisner and Colin Schmidt. This fine show is on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Ditto Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. We are on Twitter at FullDRadio, Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Hey, we are Big Tent, south left of center right north, making radio great again. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Just gonna get funky, funky